Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to the Starship Zero G. I am Megan McHugh taking you through a solo show today and so I've picked out some very Megan picks to cover. We'll be looking firstly at the 80s nostalgic slasher film, a couple of my favourite combos there, Totally Killer, that one's on Amazon Prime, and also the Netflix film Ballerina, which is a Korean action revenge thriller. So two films up today. Uh, first of all, we'll be looking at Totally Killer, the retro slasher film, which is out now on Amazon Prime. It's directed by Nanachka Khan. So she directed Always Be My Maybe as well, which is another kind of Netflix rom-com, which I really enjoyed. It has Ali Wong in it. And uh, she was also a producer on Fresh Off the Boat, American Dad. She has a lot of comedy stuff under her belt. And so this is her second feature. It was written by David Matalon, Sasha Pearl Rava, and Jen D'Angelo. And it's kind of a teen horror comedy sci-fi. So it's got a lot of things going on in there, but it's largely a slasher that deals with time travel. So it taps a lot into 80s nostalgia, which is kind of big right now, as well as digging into some classic teen horror tropes, which is always a bit of fun. The general plot and premise is that over 30 years ago, a serial killer terrorized the town of Vernon, killing three teenagers in the lead up to Halloween. And then in 2023, the infamous Sweet 16 killer returns to pick up where they left off. And the teenager, Jamie, our kind of protagonist and our girl Friday, she must travel back in time to 1987 to stop the killer before her mother's friends are murdered. So her mother's friends were the original victims of this serial killer. And it's kind of had a bit of a ripple effect on her mother's life since then. And she's seen the effects of that. But once she does travel back to 1987, not only does she have to adjust to life in the 80s, she must make friends with her teenage mother, Pam, and the three would-be victims, Tiffany, Heather, and Marissa. As teenagers, she must find and stop the killer before he can start on his killing spree. Try not to meddle too much in the past because, as we know, that is a dangerous game, as well as figure out how she can get back to the future. So there's a lot kind of going on in this premise. And largely it is very much pulled off. I think let's talk a bit about the characters. So we have Kian and Shipka plays Jamie. So she's kind of a very pivotal role because she's our Marty McFly. She's our Laurie Strode. She's our kind of center person here. She's probably most well known for playing Sally Draper as a child actor in Mad Men. And then later, of course, as Sabrina in Chilling Adventures of Sabrina on Netflix. So she is fantastic in this as Jamie. So from her kind of incredible credulousness at all of the things in the 80s, as well as her kind of determination to solve this crime and just willing to throw herself into the throes of the action. She's a really great centerpiece. And then revolving around Jamie's character, we've got back in 1987, the clique of girls that Jamie has to befriend and save ultimately. So they call themselves the Mollies, which of course, we're sort of starting to get a bit of you know, Heather's vibe were a lot of throwbacks and callbacks in this one. But they're called the Mollies and they all model themselves after different versions of Molly Ringwald, which is kind of a fun touch. And they are led by Pam, of course, who's Jamie's mother. 
So playing Pam, we do have Olivia Holt, who we last saw and talked about in her role as Tandy Bowen or Dagger in the series Cloak and Dagger and Runaways and kind of all little offshoots of that playing that character. She was also in a lot of Disney before that, but that's probably what we know her most from is her role as Dagger in Cloak and Dagger. And playing the adult Pam, so Jamie's mother in kind of current time, is Julie Bowen. So she's probably most well known to people as Claire in Modern Family pretty recognizable actor there. So those two kind of play Pam, which is Jamie Keenan Shipka's mother character. We also have Jamie's father, who's a teen at the school. Part of the fun premise of this is this is a school where no one leaves apparently. So all of the people who are there now in the current time are also their their younger selves. We meet them in the past. So Jamie's father is also at play. His name's Blake. He's played as a teen by Charlie Gillespie. Now, Charlie Gillespie is probably known. I never watched this, but I've heard from very solid sources that it's a really great underrated show. It's called Julie and the Phantoms. So he was in that. He played the character Luke, and he was also in the Charmed reboot, which is a thing that they did. I'm not sure why. Um, Playing the adult Blake, so Jamie's father as an adult, we have Lachlan Munro. We've seen him in loads and loads and loads of TV, but you might notably remember him from Scary Movie. He was also in the original Charmed, which is kind of a fun throwback. And he's also been in Smallville, Supernatural, Lucifer, and Riverdale as Betty's father. He plays a pretty recurring main role in Riverdale. So, yeah, all of these guys kind of revolve around the same TV shows a lot of the time. We also have a range of other characters, which I won't delve into too much because they are important to the story, but we won't have time to go into all of them. So in addition to kind of our core Jamie character, her mother, her father, we have a mishmash, you know, of jocks, stoners, nerds. We have the Mollies, Tiffany, Heather, and Marissa. And we also have um, in the current time of 2023, we have a lot, <laughs> loads of these, a troublesome true crime podcaster who covers the crimes in the past. He kind of has a podcast on the murders that happened in the 80s and is still obsessed with finding the killer. And we also have in both time periods, a suspicious set of sheriffs. So we have a father and daughter who play the sheriff in current time in the past, and also a mother-daughter engineering pair, and they're responsible for the time travel MacGuffin that kind of makes the whole story possible. So that's kind of how we lay our scene. We have some characters in the current time, and then once we head back to the 80s, we get to see a really vivid and lively version of the 80s of this town of Vernon, oblivious as in the lead-up to Halloween before the murders have kicked off, and can Jamie manage to save the girls and figure out who the killer is and save the future. I generally found this one to be really fun and enjoyable. It's definitely witty. There's a lot of great one-liners and that kind of propels things forward. And I genuinely think Shipka is a huge part of making the comedy land really well. And some of the one-liners she has largely around like what's different back in the 80s, which is, you know, not a new joke, but she really pulls it off. And I think just Her vibe as she goes about trying to like say in this impossible situation, trying to save these people and just really frustrated that no one's kind of paying attention to her or that she's unable to help. I think she just sells it. The tone is just perfectly right. It's not annoying. And I think she just strikes a really great mix of comedy and just just genuine uh, confusion. (laughs) So I think also the time travel horror mashup is a really fun mixture to watch unfold. I think it's a good premise executed pretty well. I think black comedy teen slashes are tricky 
to get the tone right because if it's too comedic, it seems very kind of insensitive around the horror elements. Like it just does, it just feels a bit gross, but it can also go too far and just not be funny anymore and it's too serious. So you really have to be careful to pitch it where it is still got the actual feeling of a horror movie while retaining some lightness around the black comedy elements. And I think this one does largely pull it off. I think the retro setting of going back to the 80s and that whole juxtaposition goes a long way to help it along with some easy laughs. The retro energy is really great and kept it pretty lighthearted because visually it just really hit well. It's definitely going for a bit of a camp and funny vibe at parts, but obviously it is still horror movies. There's still graphic violence Um, and... The time travel element is an interesting one too because then overlaid on top of all of this, we have the time travel stuff. And I was wondering how they were going to work it in and they really didn't create much of a backstory as to how this, you know, and I kind of appreciated that. I didn't need it to go into a long, drawn-out rigmarole about why this time travel was possible, X, Y, Z. All it gave me was here's a situation where it's possible and then some brief explanations of how time travel works in this film. And I think that's really important because time travel, obviously, there's a lot of different ways you can tackle it and what the quote-unquote rules are. And I think this film spelled out enough of how time travel worked in its world and in how it was going to be using it and then stuck to it. Not to say there's not what I feel are some holes in the logic around how the time travel works, especially in regards to the end of the film, but I think it gave me just enough time travel. Now, I do, I wonder what Rob would think of this in terms of the procedural around the time travel. I'd be very curious, Rob, on your thoughts on this, because I do think it is a bit of a light touch in terms of time travel procedural. So I'd be intrigued to know what a time travel enthusiast thinks about how it's done in this film, but I think it was just enough of a brush wave over it. And they talked a little bit about things like the Mandela effect. It got a little bit skewed as to, oh, but wouldn't she remember this fact and why would this be the case? But honestly, everything was so fun and was moving so quickly that I was willing to suspend my disbelief. I don't think this film will make it to rewatch classic status. I think that's a really hard status to reach these days for a horror movie, to be perfectly honest, especially ones that are trying to go for something more of a scream meta, you know, Halloween-esque vibe. Like I think obviously there's a lot of like what Ari Aster's doing with horror is a bit different in my mind. I think it's pretty hard to get to fun slasher repeat watching status. I do think that it's not, tense so you're not coming to this for actual tense horror energy i think it's more about some good horror action scenes which it does deliver and an interesting premise and enough of a plot to keep it going which it does do it leans very much into the juxtaposition between now and the 80s you know things like smoking general security safety and so on maybe it drags that out a little bit but i was kind of okay with it because it kept hitting home for me I also think that it was not scary, but I don't think you're going into this. All of the marketing around it, it's pretty much pitching itself as a comedy horror, so I don't think you're going in here expecting to be scared out of your wits. I genuinely think this was a solid offering. Enjoyable, great for the month of October. It picks out some great tropes to focus on, like there's a teen party setting, there's a deserted cabin setting. Yes, I do think the end was rushed, 
but overall, I really enjoyed watching this. I think that if you're looking for just something to throw on to celebrate spooky season and you're not interested in doing a rewatch of something, this is probably worth a look. If you've got Amazon Prime, it's called Totally Killer. Uh, like I said, if you're a fan of Kin and Shipka, which I think there's a few people out there who really love everything she does, I think that she brings some of the good energy she had in Chilling Adventures of Sabrina to this. I think she's really watchable. I would definitely watch her in more stuff like this for sure. So it's a yeah from me. Nothing groundbreaking here, but it doesn't promise to be. And I'm fine with that. Totally Killer. Amazon Prime, check it out. Slasher, black comedy, time travel. It's like if Marty McFly went back to stop a murder. Triple R. So we're going to switch gears and we're going to now talk about another film. This one is on Netflix. It's a Netflix original out of Korea and it's called Ballerina and it's a classic revenge action thriller and we love those a woman out for revenge and she will stop at nothing no gore or violence is too much for her in her quest to avenge a friend this one is written and directed by Lee Chung Hyun he also did the movie The Call which I haven't seen but I looked at the premise like looked up the info for it and it looks like a horror version of the lake house <laughs> it's like two people that are in the same place in different times and they're connected by a phone call but it's bad it's n- love does not ensue it's some kind of horrific event. So I might have to check that one out because I really liked this film Ballerina. So we're set in Seoul and straight away we're introduced to the character of Okju. Now she works as a private bodyguard. She's got, we get the sense she's a heavy character. She's got a lot of burden on her. But of course, being a private bodyguard, she does have all the skills associated with such a job. And in her kind of introductory scene, we really see that she has got the chops to battle not just one, not just two, but yeah, hordes of people if necessary. Not that she wants to, but she can. So by chance, one day she uh, reunited with an old school friend called Minhee. Uh, Minhee works at a bakery and she's also training as a ballerina. So she's the ballerina from our title. So opposites seem to attract here and the silent gruff Okju starts to enjoy life again. She's infused with the energy of the positive Minhee who kind of drags her out and takes her to the beach, dyes her hair. Um, they just have fun together and the two form a strong friendship. It's insinuated that it's maybe more than friendship, but for intents and purposes of the strictly what's shown, friendship is probably what's on paper. So it's not all as it seems and things do take a turn. Sadly, Okju, after a sort of a bit of a heavy phone call from Minhee, does turn up to her place and finds Minhee has taken her own life. She finds her body there as well as a note. And so spurred on by this note from her late friend, which basically asks for her help to avenge her, Okju embarks on this revenge quest that uncovers drug rings, sex trafficking, and an underworld of violent crime. So Okju's goal is to, she kind of figures out what has driven Minhee to this and she wants to make the parties responsible, namely the sadistic criminal Choi, pay for what he's done and what he's done to other women and avenge the death of her friend. So pretty classic plot there, fairly bog standard revenge trope, but sort of, I guess, a lot of style on top of this one. So we've got lots of layers. It looks really, really good. And one of the elements of kind of the whole vibe of the film is the music. And rapper and producer Lee Seung-hwa, who's also known as Grey, just 
gray, all caps. He does the music for this film and it's his first foray into scoring for film. It's the first film he's ever worked on doing the music. And uh, the director, Chung Hyun, he wanted a different style for the film than what people might have expected. And he did want to liken the process of Okju finding revenge to a ballet performance. And he really wanted to emphasize the music and the hues of color in the film. And so he wanted to use a younger, more contemporary composer. And that would help infuse the film with kind of what he described as a trendier vibe. And he distinctly says a touch of Gen Z-ness. So I think he succeeded in the music for this. It's really great. Now, as is usual with this kind of woman on a mission film, it's a largely small main cast and it's really the action that propels a lot of the plot forward. So we have Chun Jong-so who plays uh, Okju, our main character, out for revenge. She was also in the Korean thriller Burning where she played alongside Steven Yeun and she was also in The Call, which the film I mentioned earlier, who is by the same director. And she was in Netflix's Money Heist Korea, joint economic area. So she plays Okju. She really says a lot with kind of her face and her body language because she really does sell this kind of uh, determination and melancholy at the same time. And I do believe that she could do some of the destructive things that she's does in the film, like that she's driven to. I would not want to cross her path basically, but she does it with, there's a softness there as well. She's quite vulnerable. So that's Chongso as Okju. We also have Kim Ji-hoon, who also was in Money Heist Korea, joint economic area. He plays Choi. He is our bad guy. He is the guy we're trying to hunt down and kill. He's, you know, buff, long hair, lots of money, yeah, pretty pretty awful character as well from what we see of him. And he's kind of double-crossing everyone every which way, no respect for anybody. So he's our bad guy. And then we also have, of course, the ballerina of our title, Minhee. Uh, she's played by Park Yurim, and she's only done one film before this, and it was the Oscar award-winning Drive My Car, which was directed by Ryusuke Hamaguchi. That was her debut film and, yeah, won an Oscar for Best International Feature. And that film was based on Murakami's book, Men Without Women. Anyway, so Park Yurim was also in that film. And then this is her second film, Ballerina, and she plays Minhee's character, who is the doomed Minhee, the ballerina. And we don't know heaps about her. We get a lot of her in flashback. We get a lot of seeing her through Okju's eyes and how their relationship kind of grew and how she found a way to connect with Okchu and found a way to kind of bring her out of her shell a bit. But what we do see of her is she's obviously a lovely character, very sweet, very tragic backstory. So that's kind of our main cast. Obviously we do have a range of gangsters, criminal underworld, drug dealers, drug growers, drug chemists, all in the mix. None of them worthy of note. They all kind of also in the film blend a bit into the background. We're really focused on our main head-to-head between Okchu and Choi with the motivation of avenging Minhee thrown in there. We do have another character that does emerge partway through the film who kind of acts as uh, someone who kind of keeps Okchu's mission alive, let's say. She kind of emerges as well. But yeah, very small cast on this, mostly action. So yes, thoughts, feelings, reflections. Uh, I liked it. I think that it is a pretty good addition to the revenge film 
genre. I think a large part of that is the action scene choreography is pretty solid. And most of all, I do think the direction and cinematography is really wonderful in this. I think it creates a really good atmosphere and the lighting in particular is pretty standout. A lot of it takes place at night. And so the film is pretty dark and saturated, but there's a lot of neon accents and some really beautiful illumination in certain scenes and like good use of color, darkness, and light. So for example, I'm thinking mainly of there's a great scene that takes place in a hotel and that has a really beautiful color palette of like reds and dark pinks and jade greens and things like that. And then splashes of blood, obviously, but no. And then there's a restaurant after that. And again, similar dark saturated color palette, which I think just is really lovely throughout the whole film. And generally in terms of everything else, so for example, the plot, and characters and dialogue. I mean, there's nothing really standout here. It's a pretty bog standard revenge film. Okju is, you know, the strong silent type who just kind of has one mission and will just continue on that. We do see, like I said, it's played quite beautifully. Some of her softer side, we really do sympathize with her. But she does in the film, you know, it's set out pretty much like there's each stage of the revenge. She finds out more. She has to overcome each stage, just like, you know, video game, fighting her way to the next step and the next step and next step until she gets to her goal, as we expect, as it plays out, like it always does. And that's fine. You know, the usual companions are thrown at her along the way. So she has, yes, an unlikely comrade who kind of appears at one point who also has the fire of revenge in her belly. Um, some unexpected weapons dealers that arrive for a little bit of lightness, catches up with an old mentor, that kind of thing. So some really brief blips, but none of these kinds of stories are anything that we've not seen before in this kind of plot. So there isn't a lot of complexity here. I'd say even still, we get glimpses of the relationship between Okju and Minhee. Those could have been pushed further. I would have loved to see a bit more fleshed out there in terms of exactly, you know, more about their relationship, making that a little bit more complex or even pushing it further past a friendship, which is kind of alluded to, but not really. That would have been kind of nice to really have a full motivation. We get glimpses of it and we get enough to see why Okshu would be doing all this, but um, maybe a little bit more of that motivation would have been nice. But again, we're focused on the action here. Maybe all of that stuff would have dragged down the pace of the film. I don't know what I'm talking about. So <laughs> maybe it's great that we go from fight scene to fight scene and the acting is enough to kind of push it through. The fight scenes, are some of them are a bit choppy, but in generally they're very well choreographed and they become increasingly difficult and increasingly ridiculous, but love to see it. I want to, I want to see coming up against all odds and succeeding. And yeah, so there is some violent and gory stuff in it. We're not in like old boy tongue cut out territory, but there's some grotty grisly stuff and there's some content warnings as well around um, some of the themes around sexual assault. So maybe just look some of those up as well. I think that the the thing that let it down for me, honestly, is the kind of chemistry between Choi and Okju. Like, I think the best revenge films are where you can feel a kind of chemistry and really feel that adversarial energy between our protagonist who's fighting her way through and, you know, the goal, the person that she's aiming for. I think that Kim Ji-hoon, like, I don't want to smear him. Like, I feel bad saying, oh, yeah, his Choi was crap. But he was a little overdone for me really not charismatic enough to kind of pull off some of the hammy acting. I think that's where it let me down a bit because I do think that 
Jun Jong-so was fantastic as Okju. And I wanted a little more from who she was up against. I wanted a bit more from that Choi character. Yes, a more formidable opposition for her would have cranked this film up a notch for me, maybe given it some of that depth as well. Like if we've got two people going head to head, that I really feel the stakes are there, you know. But for me, like there was no moment where I had any complex feelings about that. Maybe that's fine. Maybe that's fine. I don't need to know about him. You know, let's let's kill him. All good. Um, so overall... I really think that it's got a really great vibe and I think that's in due to, like I said, the visuals and the music and coming together. Great action. It's propelled forward. Don't come to this if you're looking for something unusual. Come to this if you like a good revenge film, like a solid action flick of a woman on a mission who can kick ass. Like I said, don't come to this if you're looking for a complex exploration of grief and how violence doesn't solve anything because you know, this is a film where it's like, yay, violence does solve everything. It's, it's quite a beautiful film in some parts, but no, it doesn't do anything that new. And I don't know if I'll remember it, but I, I do think it's worth a look. It is on Netflix and yeah, really solid revenge film. I think, I mean, maybe there's nothing more. Some genres, you want the cookie cutter steps. You want to see everything play out as you expect. I don't know if I would have wanted to have my expectations subverted in this case or something revealed or some late twist in the piece or too much time delving into Okju's backstory. So maybe I take back some of the stuff I said. I actually think that keeping it fairly surface level and action focused isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I wanted a little bit more from our villain of the piece. So it's a yeah from me, especially if you're just looking for a little bit of an action flick to keep you going, something that's not like um, your hammy American action flicks, not to say there's anything wrong with them, but, you know, just something gritty and Korean could be kind of fun. I did watch it with the subtitles. Netflix loads it up with the English dub automatically. So I did hear a little piece of that. I was like, oh, I understand Korean really well suddenly, but no, it was English. The English dub didn't sound awful. So I think I would encourage you to listen to it in the original Korean with subtitles. But from what I heard, the dub isn't horrific. So, yes, that was Ballerina on Netflix. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast at Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.